Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how likely is a united Ireland in the next 10 years? I'm really excited about this episode because it marks the first one that we'll be doing with the Good Information Project, a new initiative from the journal which allows us to slow down the news a little bit for people. Much like this podcast, it isn't bound by 24-hour news cycles and irrepressible deadlines. It aims to be an in-depth, useful conversation about important issues impacting this island. The first topic that they're looking into is certainly a big question for Ireland. What could a shared island look like? The dialogue is in a completely different place now to even this time last year because of huge shifts caused by Brexit and the pandemic. After weeks of reporting on all aspects of the United Ireland question, from border polls to the influence of Scotland, we've asked three members of the Good Information Project team to come in and help us answer our own question. How likely is a United Ireland in the next 10 years? Brian Whelan, who is the project manager of the Good Information Project, and reporters Ronan Duffy and Grani Nia are here with me today. Before we delve into things like German reunification and the cost of United Ireland, I do want to fill our listeners in a little bit more about what the Good Information Project actually is, Brian. Many of our readers will have probably spotted articles on the site, but can you just explain a little bit more about what the entire series is about? Yeah, so the idea behind the Good Information Project is it's a bit of a chance to go outside the news cycle and focus on big issues or big questions and obviously teach people how to find good information. I think there's been a bit of an unrelenting news cycle, maybe nonstop since 2015 post-Brexit, and it's a good chance to sort of pause and look at issues that maybe don't get as much attention. So each month we take a big topic and sort of interrogate the audience to find out what they want to know about it. And we're going to do that across 15 content cycles, sort of go on a bit of a journey with, with the audience, find out what they want to know, provide them with information and then hopefully send them out into the world with that information to sort of spread good information. I'm obviously biased, but it even sounds really good and I know all about it. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, If people are listening and they do kind of want to go on that journey or they do want to be engaged, how do they go about doing that? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of ways and there's lots of levels of engagement that um, we're totally open to with the project. The easiest way to stay across what's happening is to sign up for the newsletter. From there, we can push you towards other things like if you want to join the Facebook group, there's been great discussion in there. It's very civil discussion. People are starting polls. People are like posting short essays in there about their ideas for this month's topic, which is the shared island. If you want more direct feedback, you can WhatsApp me directly and I will reply. You can email me directly. I will get back to you. And... Everything that people are sending, we, we've received such like an enormous amount of like good, well thought out, civil, like clever ideas about this already and so many suggestions. And I'm, I'm collating it all and feeding it back to the journalists. And then, you know, those ideas are going into things like, well, even even article selection, but they're also going into things like the open newsroom. And I'm sure some of the ideas will be discussed today as well that the audience has fed back to us. And we'll include details of all of those uh, email addresses and WhatsApp numbers in the article for this podcast and at the end of the podcast as well. But Brian, can you give us a flavor of some of those discussions, those good civil discussions that are happening? What's being said by people around this topic of a united Ireland? So there are sort of repeated um, themes and questions that come up immediately when you mention the idea of a shared island or a united Ireland. The first one usually is someone saying that we can't afford it. 
or conversely someone saying that actually you know it will be an economic utopia once we unite the 32 counties but there's actually very little information about that so that recurring question that like gets whatsapp to us that gets discussed in the facebook group people have emailed about it like I, i think that's a really good steer on well where is the information out there about this and obviously i'm sure you'll discuss later cj wrote a brilliant article that brought all of that information together which is actually quite difficult to find particularly if you're not an economics graduate or you're not like a, a legal um expert like cj is another thing that comes up quite a lot is the idea of unionists and there's two very different approaches to this that we will see quite a lot one is you know we have to do more to bring unionists into the idea of a shared island and then the unfortunate other one is sort of that you regularly see is the idea that unionists should be forced off the island somehow and that does suggest to us that you know we we need to listen to unionists and it needs to be a discussion about what way unionists fit in and some journalism needs to be done around that issue as well another common thing is the idea of giving up the NHS for the HSE which obviously comes more from people who are based in the north so people are very interested in even in an increasingly shared island what could healthcare look like and then that's something that Gronia obviously uh, did quite a lot of work on over the last few weeks yeah we'll definitely get into the healthcare stuff with Gronia later and as you mentioned CJ McKinney's piece on the economics of it all but can we jump ahead a little bit can you give us a hint about what is in store for the good information project readers and listeners in the coming months So to find out what we're doing next after the shared island uh you'll need to sign up to the newsletter because I promised that I would drop the topic in there first but some of the areas we're looking at are heavily based around like solutions and sort of big ideas for Ireland's future so things like the economic recovery housing uh the future of fishing maybe the idea of a circular economy and then other things like the generation gap in Ireland uh you know the impact of social media racism civil rights even you know the future of uh, Bunrockneheran and what could a, a different constitution look like for Ireland so these are ideas um that we have that we'd like to bounce off the audience but obviously people are welcome to suggest areas that they just know nothing about or they feel there's not enough good information on and you know I'm always listening so I'm happy to hear from people on that That's great. I can't wait to actually find out what the next topic is. And thanks so much for joining us on the Explainer Brown. We're going to leave you there and turn to Ronan and Gronia, as I said, to get into the nitty gritty about everything that they've been finding out in the last uh, few weeks. And just looking at your work in general on this topic, uh, Ronan, I'm going to start with you because you were the person looking at the existing mechanism which could lead to a united Ireland, and that's a border poll. Um, could you tell us exactly? what it is and how it would work if it was deployed. Yeah, no problem, Sinead. I think um, one of the things to point out about this is that, you know, the theory of it is perhaps quite straightforward and the practice of it is a lot more work has, has to be done for us to put that into practice. So I think that's a good way to, to frame this. And I think the reason that is the case is, you know, in theory, within the Good Friday Agreement, it is clearly stated and both governments accepted this of course the good friday agreement was accepted on both parts of this island as well that it's all about the consent principle and that northern ireland essentially has a choice as to whether it should remain part of the united kingdom as is currently the case as is currently accepted by the irish and uk governments but it also has the ability 
to decide if it wanted to join a united Ireland. And that uh, mechanism would happen by way of, as it's outlined in the Good Friday Agreement, a concurrent choice made both north and south. So that's kind of interpreted as there would be referendums in both Republic and the north of Ireland, and that that will decide if a united Ireland was to take place. And both governments also, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, have accepted that they would have to make legislative effect to that decision if it was taken. So basically, that's kind of where the discussion is at the moment. It's it's that, okay, this is in the Good Friday Agreement that if it, a border poll, or there's a, already a contentious question over whether that's something we'd call it, but it's in the Good Friday Agreement that if both North and South were to agree that the United Ireland was to happen, that would have to be accepted. And where we're at now is, okay, what are the circumstances where that kind of conversation and those votes would happen. Yeah, Is there any appetite for a border poll to happen soon in Northern Ireland or indeed in the Republic of Ireland? The, the thing about that is, is that there's an interesting question that takes place around that at the moment, because for a referendum to happen, it is essentially within the gift of the Northern Ireland Secretary of State. As, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, it is that person, Brandon Lewis is currently in that role, who will, who, who can essentially decide if they see it's likely that such a referendum was passed, then that referendum should take place. And that's kind of that's kind of what's accepted and that's the, the situation. But what's not clear is, you know, how can the Secretary of State decide what's likely or what isn't likely? You know, that's kind of, you can, you can use many metrics to decide um, if you think a referendum is likely to pass. But, you know, as we've seen in plenty of times in the past, referendums haven't gone the way we expected them to. So the question is, how can a Secretary of State be clear as to when it would happen? One way you could look at it is opinion polling. There was an opinion poll um, back in January. It was a Sunday Times opinion poll. And it asked a number of questions around this issue. First, one of the questions that made a lot of headlines was whether there should be actually a border poll in the next five years. This is a poll of people in Northern Ireland. And 51% said yes, there should be a poll within the next five years. And 44% said no. Now within that poll, it's worth pointing out that 47% of people said they would vote to stay within the United Kingdom and 42% would vote for United Ireland. So there's still a majority there for continued membership of the UK. There was 11% don't know in that poll. Now, you know, you could argue and usually people argue when it comes to referendums that don't knows are more likely to sway towards the status quo. So you could perhaps say that you know, you, there's, there's more of a gap there than there appears. And I would also point out that, you know, unionist politicians and some other academics have pointed to, well, there are other polls that don't put unity in anywhere near that kind of support. There's, a, there's like an ongoing poll that's called the Northern Ireland Life and Times Poll by the Ulster University and Belfast, uh, Queen's University, Belfast. And the most recent support they had for unity in 2019 was down at 22%. So a lot lower. The most popular constitutional arrangement in that poll was devolved government within the UK at 44% which is kind of where we are now, devolved government within the UK. But then again, you could argue in the United Ireland situation, we could have a devolved Northern Ireland assembly within a United Ireland. So that perhaps could change the complexion of that at the moment. So that's kind of where we are as, well, as regards the appetite. Um, it's kind of, it's not clear at the moment, I think is perhaps the fair way to put it. And indeed the Northern Ireland office, I mentioned earlier on the Secretary of State, the Northern Ireland office is kind of, governance this thing. And as, as recently as this month, they said they're firmly of the view there is no clear evidence that such a referendum would pass. 
Yeah, it's a hard one to ask a polling question about because there's various contextual things that are hard to put into a poll. Like, for example, Brexit. Like if you had asked five years ago, would you like a United Ireland if it meant you stayed in the EU? That might have seemed silly, but then Britain does go and leave the EU. So there's always different uh, questions that'll create different answers, I guess, in a poll. Grania, Brexit has been a, a huge part of this conversation, but also one of the other things that I think has precipitated a lot of the media talk has been that the government in Ireland set up what's called a shared island unit to actually look at the logistics around becoming a, a more shared island, I guess, exactly what it says on the tin. You were looking at exactly what it is and what its aims are. Can you give us some background to why it was set up and how it's working at the moment? So the shared island unit is set up within the Taoiseach's department and it's a civil servant powered unit that looks at the nuts and bolts, as the Taoiseach put it, of how a more kind of uh, cooperative north and south island of Ireland could work. Um, so it's looking at practical ways of the two jurisdictions working more fluidly together, I suppose. At the moment, it's kind of research based. So, you know, they're holding these dialogues, these shared island dialogues, where every couple of months they pick a topic and they talk to a load of people about their opinions on a certain issue. So, for example, they've helped three so far, one on the environment, one where they speak to young people, and then another one on civil society, which is the most recent one. Uh, it's also commissioned research that's looking at things like the economy, health, education. It's looking to supplement this huge gap that we have about how if we had a more shared island or a united Ireland, how that would work in practice, because basically there's a dearth of information out there about it. And what's the reaction to it actually happening being like from communities in Northern Ireland? Because it does feel like, even if that's not the point, it does feel like it's a, it's a stepping stone to a united Ireland. Completely. And that might be one of the, the problems with it, that it sounds pre-packaged. But there's a two-pronged answer to that question, I suppose. In general, it is welcomed because even if there's no united Ireland, this is kind of work that should be happening anyway to look at how you can cooperate better between North and South institutions. Uh, if you look at healthcare, for example, if there's better north-south cooperation between health systems in the two jurisdictions and that leads to better health outcomes and people are healthier as a result, people aren't going to say, well, it's against my politics, so I'm against this happening. The work of the Shared Island Unit is also very theoretical. You know, they're talking to people, they're commissioning research, they're just looking at ideas at the moment rather than proposing anything concrete. So that keeps it all in a neutral space. Uh, but there are difficulties, obviously, with the idea of a shared island unit. You know, if you're a unionist or a loyalist and you're asked to engage with the shared island unit to give your opinions, even if that's I don't want to unite as Ireland, that feels contradictory to do. So that level of engagement will be crucial and it'll be interesting to see what level of it they get. The head of the Shared Island Unit, Angela O'Donoghue, said that she was heartened by the level of engagement from unionists right at the start of the launch of it. So that's a good sign, but we'll see if it continues um, because things are very fraught in Northern Ireland at the moment. You know, there's a lot of tensions over the new Brexit checks under the Northern Ireland Protocol. But if that kind of continues to simmer down, it might leave a good ground for kind of better relations north and south. And that will be good for young people in particular, because, you know, speaking to someone 
for the Good Information Project, who said that young people are really interested in what the Shared Island Unit are doing and any kind of opportunities a more shared island can bring to them in particular, especially around education. Yeah, Ronan, you were looking at this in terms of a lot of the questions are more about civic society rather than, you know, capital P letter politics. So um, was there anything that you found out there that kind of highlighted that this is more about that idea of a shared island rather than a united Ireland? Yeah, I, I was spoke to a number of civil society organisations, you know, both in, in the Republic and the Northern Ireland. And, you know, just to kind of explain what a civil society group is, it's it's a group that's working together to achieve a specific goal, whether it's like a cancer charity or the GAA would be a large one that's specifically focused around voluntary work. And I, I think what, what they kind of outlined is that their priorities in any work they do is, you know, what's best for my community? And, and, and that's how they approach any kind of conversation. So I, I spoke to the, the Northern Ireland um, Council for Voluntary Action, and they explained that there's about 7% of all organisations in Northern Ireland actually operate on an all-Ireland basis as it is already. You know, like I mentioned, the GEA, there's also certain religious groups like Accords, those kind of things. So they already kind of have that mindset that the, the constitutional question isn't necessarily what's important to them. But that, you know, we will we will engage on a north south basis on a cross border basis if we think that that is something that will help people. And I, I think one of the things I spoke to um, the wheels, Deirdre Garvey, people might be aware of the wheel. It's a it's a kind of an umbrella organization for for civil society groups in, in the Republic. And they, she kind of outlined that. No, civil society groups were in many ways the driving force behind marriage equality and and behind the, the Eighth Amendment referendum, because these difficult discussions, you know, they can often get bogged down in politics, but it can also be a lot easier to deal with them um, in, in around bread and butter issues in the local community, because, you know, the sense of place and all the, these kind of issues are perhaps better dealt with, you know, within smaller local groups rather than trying to be, you know, too highfalutin about it. Yeah, and quite similarly, Grani, when you were looking at healthcare, you did find that the two systems do manage to work together at times. And that might be surprising to some people, given we've been talking so much about the two different responses to the, the current pandemic. But is there something that you learned in the healthcare space that you thought this is something that does show that a shared island could exist in whatever form, a united Ireland or a devolved government And is it something that's important to both sides of the border? Yeah. um, So two of the shining light examples of health cooperation are children's paediatric heart services and um, all island cancer services. So on the first one, it's a really interesting comparison. So they wanted children's heart services in Northern Ireland. They couldn't supplement that, that basically the population need isn't there because it's a small section of society, basically. But if you have a sick child, you don't want to get a plane over to the UK to access health services there. It's expensive and it's just kind of a bit more arduous. So they came up with this all island unit where children would get access to that health care on the island of Ireland in Dublin in Crumlin's Children's Hospital. And like that has been operating for years and it's an, a, a more effective way of treating people. So that's a really good example of how that's just practically a better way of doing things. But there's a lack of research, I suppose, in other areas of healthcare about what can be done on a better uh, foundation between North and South. 
Um, a, a professor I spoke to, uh, Professor Deirdre Heenan, said that it's all well and good saying things work better on an all-island all basis, but you have to have research to back that up. You can't just make a declaration about it like that, as vague as that is, and just hope that something comes out of it. So there's a real um, gap on what else can work, and there's there's a real um, impetus now on the academic brains north and south of the border to come up with other ideas like this to kind of uh, fortify north-south cooperation just on the NHS as well because the NHS in well it's called the NHS in Northern Ireland it's actually uh, something a little bit different because it also provides social services that's really important to people in Northern Ireland but Jim O'Callaghan made the point when talking about the constitutional changes that political policies being uh, promoted in the Dáil are kind of hinting that the Republic is headed towards that kind of healthcare as well, you know, expanding free GP care to children and the Slaw into Care document, which has uh, support across all political parties. But Northern Ireland is kind of matching to the North in a little bit, a little bit in that way. So that might hint to that being less of a problem as time goes on. Yeah, one of the big questions around, you know, fixing the, the healthcare down here is the cost of it. And Brian mentioned at the start of this episode, Ronan, that people have been asking about the cost of reunification or a shared island. Um, but we know very little about that. Is that going to change anytime soon? I think one of the fairest things to, to say about this is that so far there's kind of very little concrete work done in this area. You know, we, we have had some kind of research done on it, but it's perhaps not of the volume that we could perhaps come to any kind of significant conclusion um, on it. I think Brian mentioned earlier an article we had in the journal by uh, CJ McKinney kind of goes into this thing a lot, so it's probably worth checking out. And he kind of mentions that, you know, the principle of a United Ireland, you know, it may or may not be important to people what the economics of it is, but it is a question that will, of course, be um, raised in any kind of discussions around it. And the question has to be asked, you know, when we're talking about the economic benefits or economic costs. You know, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about benefits to the Republic? Are we talking about benefits to Northern Ireland or the cost to vote? Or are we talking about as an island together, you know, how do these issues kind of play out? And I, I think we have seen that there is some work beginning to be done to look at this. I know the Royal Irish Academy is is doing some work with the University of Notre Dame to, to kind of analyze this north-south kind of economic cooperation. And, you know, importantly, the ESRI, which, you know, as we know, is you know, the e Economic Social Research Institute in the Republic of Ireland does most of this kind of economic um, research. It has been commissioned as part of the Shared Island Unit, I believe, to look at increased economic north-south cooperation. So that would be something that will be very important to this discussion and we'll be worth keeping an eye on. Hearing that and also listening to the conversation that we've been having on the Good Information Project and the Claire Byrne Show, which had a huge audience when they did their debate or program around um, the possibility of United Ireland, it does feel, Grania, that we're very much at the start of this conversation, that it's still in its kind of embryonic phase. From everything that you've been reading about and learning, what do you think is a realistic time frame? Yeah, it's hard to put a time frame on it because of the lack of kind of hard policies that people are proposing. You know, if you compare to Scottish independence, the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, which is another theme we've been looking at, they had a 600 page document that basically outlined everything that would happen in, a, in an independent Scotland scenario. And that was really crucial to, to the debate. It was kind of the 
the foundation for the television debates and and the discussions that were had in Scotland ahead of that referendum. And that was important because when you're voting yes, you know exactly what you're voting for, which is kind of the problem, the opposite of which we saw in the Brexit referendum. So we need that kind of level of detail. We need 600 pages at least of kind of cooperation and what a United Ireland would look like. Um, the Taoiseach has said, you know, quite definitively, there won't be a border poll in the next five years, which is why we have this shared island unit uh, time frame of five years and, and the funding for five years, because he seems quite confident that uh, that's not the, that won't happen in that time. But, you know, another thing people are used to talk about in a border poll is within my lifetime. And a lot of, you know, the very senior politicians in Ireland, you know, Bertie Hearn, Jerry Adams say they do think it will happen in their lifetime. So um, hard to tell, basically. Yeah, Bertie Hearn says that he thinks 2028 would be a, a good year for it, given the Good Friday Agreement anniversary. Ronan, you have something to say there as well? I suppose kind of on that, one of the things we can mention is, you know, we could almost call this the Bertie Hearn question now because he's managed to insert himself into this question by suggesting 2028 as a potential time for this kind of poll, given that it would be 30 year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I think you mentioned now, Sinead, there was a Claire Byrne debate on this, and I think Michael Martin had a bit of a wry smile when Bertie Hearn was brought into the conversation. Um, the one thing I would say about that is that I would say that most people who are advocating for a border poll wouldn't see that as a bad timeline. You know, I think a lot of people would say who are opposed to it, you know, it's not the time now. No one's really saying it's the time now. As Grania mentioned, there's a lot of work to be done in the interim, but 2028 perhaps doesn't sound like a bad timeline. That's what I would say about that. But in terms of a timeline, I think one of the things to point out is that and advocates who want a timeline say it's not so much about setting a deadline that, you know, United Ireland has to happen by this particular date or we have to vote on this particular date. It's about saying, and anyone who followed the Good Friday Agreement and uh, all the negotiations that happened around that is that deadlines are important because they set the parameters whereby a debate can happen. And if, if you do kind of set a timeline, you know, focuses minds on planning and pre preparing. And, you know, you could perhaps argue that the governments can't ignore those questions to the same degree that they are if there is a timeline in place. And as I said at the start, Brexit has provided impetus or a bit of a kick to the Dublin government to look at Northern Ireland and some of these questions have become much more important. A lot of work has gone into the Good Information Project, obviously, and you guys have been researching far and wide on all of the various articles that you have written. Grania, has there, and I'm going to ask you both this, has there been anything that you have learned that has been particularly surprising or changed your perception of something um, throughout who you've been speaking to or what you've been reading? I thought the analysis of German unity, which you, I would have thought would have been a success until I started looking into it, um, was really interesting because a lot of things that they dealt with around the time of reunification and since then, in the 30 years since then, really struck a chord with me. And I spoke to two academics, uh, German academics based in Ireland, about the similarities they've seen, you know, in the debate around a united Ireland here and how that sounded familiar to what they had experienced in Germany. Um, it's really interesting the, the the similar issues that they faced, even though obviously there's a lot of differences and they're almost as illustrative as the similarities. But, you know, they talk about the idea of identity, the idea of the West of Germany 
you know, swallowing the East and didn't really take into account some of the good things that they had there, like, you know, supports for mothers returning to the workforce and supports for childcare and things like that, that they're now talking about reintroducing. Um, so it's really interesting how they, uh, how it happened all quite quickly as well. You know, the, the Berlin Wall fell in October 89 and a year later, Germany was reunified and had the same currency and, you know, businesses and um, state services were all the same and businesses started collapsing because they were struggling under this new system. All of that was really interesting because I think as familiar as we are with Germany and its history and as iconic as the fall of the Berlin Wall was, the actual hard work that happened after that isn't really talked about that much. Um, there was a bit of discussion about it last year, obviously, with the 30 year anniversary. But I think there's a lot of lessons for Irish people in how Germany grappled with that very difficult issue and are still dealing with it today. Same question to you, Ronan. What are the facts that you'd like to, to leave with us before we finish up today? What I would say like, is not so much a fact, but I, I think what has been interesting and I think an important thing to take from this research that we've been doing is that you know, it is possible to have these conversations. I think that's something that is important to note and that shouldn't be taken for granted. You know, you mentioned the Claret Burn debate. We talked about it last week. It was quite civil. I think most people agreed. I even saw the other day there was a uh, online Young Fine Gael discussion that involved Jeffrey Donaldson, Neil Richmond, Atutul from the SDLP and Emma D'Souza. You know, these conversations happen within a Young Fine Gael context, for example, I think people can forget that as part of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, that wasn't a means, that wasn't the end of the discussion. The Good Friday Agreement in many ways was a mechanism where we can continue to have discussions about what is the best for all the people on this island. And I think what what, what I've seen so far is that it is possible to have these discussions in a way that is civil and that is um, progressive and is productive and that we don't need to, you know, descend into any kind of negativity. Yeah, and as Brian said, that's really been happening with the Good Information Project. So if people want to join in, as we said, we'll give all the details at the end of the podcast and uh, in the article. And it really is worthwhile. Those discussions are informative um, and provocative, but in a progressive, civil manner. Uh, Ronan Grani, thanks so much for all of your work on the Good Information Project and also coming into the Explainer today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Grania, Brian and Ronan. Brian earlier mentioned engaging with the Good Information Project and all the various ways you can do that are listed with the article for this podcast. But quickly, we will give out the WhatsApp number. You can get Brian on 089-263-0863. You can also find all of the articles and sign up for the project's newsletter at thejournal.ie and on our social media sites. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people discover, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.